0: Well, folks, I've never seen a deer caught in the headlight so thoroughly as I did this morning with my son. However, he did muddle through pretty well, so he obviously was very startled. Okay, today we're going to do something a little different. I'd like you to turn to Romans 9.22, which is going to be our central text today, subject matter. I am not going to have you bounce all over the Bible, although I'm going to go to quite a few different references. I'd like you to just stay here so you're not thumbing through the Bible. I'll let you know where a few of these references are, but um, just stay right here in Romans 9. You'll be fine. In 1997... My son, David, and I climbed Mount Sinai, and we were behind a group of young people from our tour bus who were climbing the mountain. And one of the young guys who was David's age loved to show off by doing handstands. He was very good at it. And so on the peak of Mount Sinai, he filled me with horror and terror as I saw him walk to the very edge of a 400-foot sheer cliff on the side of Sinai and bend down and curl his fingers over the edge of the cliff and do a handstand on the edge of a 400-foot sheer rock cliff. And he held that with his feet and legs straight together for about 10 seconds, for really quite a while. And my heart stopped beating and I stopped breathing because I could see a gust of wind or him get dizzy and I could see this not end well, no matter how. And after those 10 seconds, he then spread his feet apart and brought them down and then stood up. I was not proud of him. I didn't think he did it. A wise thing. In fact, if I told you folks not to do that, most of you would say, Psh, "I'm not even going to even think about it." This is a scary thing to do. In fact, my knees started getting very, very weak and shaky, and I could feel just a sensation of impending doom when I saw that happen. Similarly, as if you walked to the edge of a skyscraper on the edge of a balcony and look over and even though there's a railing see there's no railings on Mount Santa but even with a railing and you're looking down you get a real uneasy sense of so this morning I'd like you to urge you to choose the wiser option of life rather than death on the edge of death You don't need to live on the edge of death. Dr. Dave Reed was our leader of that group in 1997. and He was one of David's favorite teachers at Emmaus. And so consequently, Dave talked our whole family into going to Israel with Dr. Dave twice. And it was very good, very instructive. In fact, on the second time, we took Stan and Pat Skies with us when we went and they enjoyed it. 1999, so we have very fond memories of that excursion, but only 13 years later, in January of 2012, Dr. Dave Reed, who was a world-class skier, was skiing with a Bible study group in Utah, and he was such an expert athletic skier that he always skied the Black Diamond Courses which are the most demanding. He was the first one on the course that morning, and what no one knew is that a layer of ice had covered the snow on the Black Diamond course. And so his skis could not bite into the snow to turn, and consequently one of his skis came off, and he skidded out of control But he was so adept at skiing, he still kept his balance on one ski and tried to turn. And instead, he shot over a 200-foot cliff and was killed instantly. He was 74 years old. The point of this is none of us know the day or the hour when we're going to shoot over the edge into eternity. We don't know. Even when we choose not to live on the edge of a precipice, We all eventually slip over the edge into death. Dr. Reed never chose to balance himself on the edge of the cliff. He always stayed on the safe designated ski trails until that day that ice made that impossible. The moment Dr. Reed was killed, he was with the Lord in eternity in heaven because Dave Reed was a firm believer in Jesus Christ as his savior. The author of all life is the loving God of heaven who welcomes all believers to his eternal home. The Bible is full of examples of God's character. In fact, Scripture introduces us to God through his attributes, his personality, his character. That's how we learn that God is love and that he loves mankind so much that he demonstrates self-sacrificial love in offering himself as the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead. Another one of his attributes, or personality character traits, is extreme patience toward people. The scripture calls that long-suffering. In English, we use the term interchangeably, but technically, patience is only directed Toward circumstances, whereas long-suffering is only directed toward people. Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, suffering without getting angry or upset. It involves circumstances, not people. Long-suffering is to be long-tempered, not short-tempered, in spite of troubles caused by other people. Long-suffering is to show restraint when stirred to anger. A long-suffering person is not quick to retaliate or to punish. I'm going to quickly read you passages throughout both the Old and New Testament which define God's character and proclaim his long-suffering toward people. And quite honestly, I'm nearly 80 years old. I'm 76 years old in all my life. I've never heard a sermon on this topic. You folks are hearing the first time that I've ever heard somebody speak on long-suffering. It starts with Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord is talking to Moses, and I told you, don't turn in your Bible. You'll be flipping there all day, and you're going to lose the contact. I want you to stay in Romans, please. The Lord is talking to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's how God introduced himself to Moses. That's what he said. In that description of himself, long-suffering was right at the top psalm eighty six fifteen but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth Romans two four or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance romans nine twenty two What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known? Endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's the scripture I ask you to turn to today. That's our central text. That's our subject. What of God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known? Endured with much long suffering. Galatians five twenty says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, long suffering. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness. So incidentally, all those who claim to be Christians and dwelt by the Holy Spirit should exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, including long-suffering toward other people. First Peter 3.20 says, Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering... Waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Think with me. Only a long-suffering God would give rebellious man many years on earth time to repent and turn to him and be saved. Despite the rebellious condition of the world... The Lord God waited patiently for 100 years for people to repent while Noah preached and built the ark before the judgment of the flood came. The Lord gave the Canaanites 400 years to repent before they were destroyed by Israel. Our God is a long-suffering God. He gives you and me years to repent before the judgment of death comes to any of us. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Nor does he take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? God relents from doing harm. His long-suffering is seen in his gracious restraint of his wrath towards those who deserve it, and all of us deserve it. It causes me great sadness because of my rebellious spirit, but a great gladness for his long-suffering mercy and grace toward me anyway. Contrary to the popular view, a person who is long-suffering is not weak, Instead, he is strong in character and bold in resisting rash reactions. We should all be grateful that our strong God chooses to be the epitome of long-suffering love, although many men consequently scorn it and think judgment and punishment will never happen to them because it hasn't happened yet. So what is the result of God's long-suffering attribute. If we were to define God's long-suffering, we might say that it is the attribute of God that allows him to endure our offenses and patiently call us to repentance rather than promptly punishing us. It's his self-restraint in the face of provocation that delays the expression of his wrath. God doesn't need patience with circumstances. Because he controls them. He can change them. Events cannot resist him. But he made people with the wills of their own. And they can resist him. And they do. They wrong him. They offend him. Sin against him. Tempt him. And try to provoke him to wrath. But he's not easily provoked. He does not quickly explode into a blaze of anger. Because he's long-suffering takes a great deal of power to show restraint when people are provoking us. But God has that power because he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. So he has the power to restrain himself. In fact, the prophet Nahum put the two together like this. The Lord is slow to anger and great with power. Isn't that interesting? That's an interesting contrast. A contrast, slow to anger but at the same time, great with power. In our minds, great power and being all-powerful means that you never have to suffer. That's what it means. In fact, it's a contradiction in terms. If you're all-powerful, you don't suffer. You can make other people suffer, but you don't. And yet, our gracious God has chosen to be long-suffering, and even suffer on a cross and die for our sins. Some people despise and look down on God for appearing weak and suffering on a cross. But we really learn how great the power really is when we see the demonstration of God's long-suffering toward all of us rebellious sinners. And that's why the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, God's values and priorities are totally different from ours. Totally different. Which one of us, as an all-powerful person, would say, oh, I'd gladly suffer? We wouldn't. No king has ever done that outside of the king of heaven. Not one. No great leader has ever done that outside of Christ the Lord. The nation of Israel never did stop provoking God. In fact, God counted ten different occasions between their exodus from Egypt and their arrival in Kadesh Barnea when they provoked him, when they refused to take him at his word and do what he told them to do. It all came to a head when the 12 spies returned from checking out the land and 10 of them gave a pessimistic report. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Go back to slavery. I've quoted to you Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4. That's what they actually said. That's what they did. And as a result, God's patience or long-suffering... Was exhausted. He expressed again his inclination to destroy them, and he repeated his offer to make Moses the founder of a new and great nation in Numbers 14. But again, Moses prayed. Here's what Moses prayed Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. That's Numbers 14, 17, and 18. Moses is quoting to God, God's own words. He made his request for pardon based on God's own revelation of himself. God had said he was long-suffering. Moses believed that, and he knew God had the power to restrain his wrath. So he pleaded for pardon on those grounds. He interceded for the rebellious people based on God's character. But there was no end to the abuse God suffered from those people. Paul, in his sermon in the synagogue at Antioch, reminded us that he put up with their disgusting behavior for 40 years in the wilderness in Acts 13. When they finally did reach their promised land, they repeatedly turned away from the Lord and worshipped the gods of the Canaanites. And while he chastened them for their sin by delivering them into the hands of surrounding nations, He did not utterly destroy them. Instead, he raised up judges to lead them out of their servitude. Incredible. He blessed them because he's long-suffering. Several times during the periods of the kings, he delayed his judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. And after the Babylonian captivity, when the restored nation rejected his son and nailed him to a cross, he waited yet another 40 years before allowing the Romans to level their capital and disperse them to the ends of the earth. His restraint in exercising his wrath against rebellious sin went far beyond what they deserved. And his demonstration of long-suffering has not been limited to the nation of Israel, Look at his evaluation at the whole human race in the days of Noah. Scripture says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. That's Genesis 6, 5, 11, and 12. And when you look at our society today, and in fact the entire world, you see those same kind of conditions. The very same. Corrupt. Murder. It's so easy. You read in the newspapers every day about some person shooting and killing another person for no reason. The earth is corrupt. Yet the Lord waited another 120 years before he judged the earth and he destroyed the population of the earth with a flood. And all that time, he had Noah preaching to them the message of righteousness. It says that in 2 Peter 2. The apostle Peter identified that as long-suffering. He referred to that generation as the people who were disobedient when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So God was long-suffering not just toward Israel, but for the whole world. His long-suffering is not just for Bible times 2,000 years ago, but he's still long-suffering toward us today. Look at another illustration. God warned Abraham that his descendants would be sojourners in a strange land, that is, Egyptian bondage. But that in the fourth generation, they would come out with many possessions and return to their promised land. Why the delay? Why did God wait? Why did they have to stay in bondage so long? The Lord told the reason for the delay, quote, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It says that in Genesis fifteen sixteen. Their cup of iniquity was filling up, but it was not yet full. God gave the Canaanites 400 years to turn from their wickedness, but it only got worse. Idolatry, child sacrifice, religious prostitution, homosexuality, and every conceivable abomination multiplied with each succeeding generation until their cup of iniquity was full and God commanded Joshua and the people of Israel to destroy them. But he had patiently waited 400 years first. He delayed the application of wrath Because it's in his nature to restrain himself. I'd now like you to turn to Romans 9, which is our central text. Because there's a very interesting concept there related to God's long-suffering. The Apostle Paul said, The Lord God endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. In verse 22. Now think that through a minute. God is saying there are people who can only be categorized as vessels of wrath. God has been good to them, yet they have resisted his grace and chosen to defy him. They are worthy of nothing but his wrath, equipped for nothing better than eternal ruin. They are vessels of wrath fitted for the destruction of the second death. And yet God patiently puts up with them with much long-suffering. We wonder why he doesn't do something. If we were God, we'd move much faster and earlier and zap some people. Why doesn't he oblige the insolent atheist who shouts, if there's a God, let him strike me dead right here and now. Don't you wish God would immediately whack the guy I know of? To be honest with you, I have wished that. What an opportunity to instill the fear of God in other folks and show that he's there, show that he's real, and that he won't always put up with foolish assaults and insults. Why doesn't he smack the brazen Soviet cosmonaut who insists that there's no God because he didn't find him a few hundred miles from Earth? Why doesn't a gigantic lightning bolt spear people who blaspheme him? Because it's his nature to be long suffering. We see his character demonstrated all around us every day. Not only does he not punish them, but he gives them rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and provides them with food and gladness. Acts fourteen seventeen. Gladness? How do you like that? That's like sending provisions and happiness to the enemy invaders begins to make us wonder whether God really does care about sin. The very fact that long-suffering is defined as a delay in the expression of God's wrath implies that eventually, and that highlights another difference between long-suffering and mercy. The Bible says that mercy is everlasting. Psalm 100, verse 5. His mercy endures forever. Psalm 106, verse 1. But that is never said about his long-suffering. It never says that his long-suffering is endless. The practice of long-suffering that God has showed toward sinners has a terminus point. There comes a time when God's patience with willful, rebellious sinners ends. And his wrath and judgment begins. A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Proverbs 29, 1. We never know when we will accidentally ski over the cliff into eternity. Those doing a handstand on the edge never know when they will fall. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior from sin, I plead with you not to trifle with God's long-suffering, nor try to take advantage of him. There will come a day when he deals with you in judgment. God does not go on indefinitely overlooking sin, for which there has been no repentance, sin which has never been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He may postpone his judgment for a while, but he does not forget about sin. Paul reminded the Athenian philosophers of that on Mars Hill. He said, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. There's his long suffering. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he is appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Acts 17 verses 30 and 31. That message isn't any more popular today than it was in Paul's day. In fact, it doesn't calm troubled minds, nor does it soothe ruffled feathers. It won't win many friends nor ingratiates with many people, but it's true. It's a fact. If you have never turned from your unbelief and trusted Christ as your Savior, do not be misled by God's long-suffering. It's not a license To go on rebelling and to continue rejecting his son is the evidence of God's love for you and his desire to save you from the eternal punishment. He is patiently waiting, holding back his wrath against your sin of unbelief. Respect his gracious delay. God's long-suffering and forbearance is designed to lead you to repentance. Romans says that. Chapter 2, verse 4. It is his desire that it will result in your eternal salvation. Second Peter 3.15 says that. The main reason God has allowed me to live this long after my heart stopped beating for 15 minutes in 2018 is to proclaim this message. That's the main reason. There may be other reasons, but that's the main one. The main reason God has allowed you to live this long is so that you could hear the message of God's long-suffering. He brought you here to listen so that you could hear that Christ died for your sins. God is infinitely holy, but he willingly accepts you through his Son because Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, and that can have that salvation if you only trust for that free gift. By doing that, you'll avoid the second death, which is eternal separation from God. In the lake of fire. Hell is a real place. Reserved for real people. Who reject Jesus Christ. As their real savior. Come to him. As your savior. And not your judge. Terrifying to think of God the judge. But oh so glad to think him. Of his Christ my savior. There's a promise on both ends. There's a promise of judgment. From God the judge. There's a promise of rescue of Christ the Savior. And that's what I'm urging you to consider today. Christ the Savior. Carol and Phyllis Wood used to sit in the third pew, right where Paul and Rebecca Irvin normally sit. They sat there for many years. They are both now in heaven. As I look across the pews here, I can remember many, many saints, many people who knew Christ as Savior, you are now with the Lord in heaven. One of them was only a 12 year old girl, used to sit right over there. Her name was Ellie Skies, granddaughter of Stan and Pat Skies. She and her parents used to sit right there. She died at the age of 12. We never know, folks, when we're going to fall over the edge into eternity. So if you want to think of it this way, it's true. We're all doing a handstand on the edge of the precipice. All of us are. We just never know when our arms are going to give out. We don't know. And that's why I urgently proclaim this message to you today. It's real. Both the punishment or the glory. Both of them are real. So I would invite you to join the company of believers who equally rejoice in the living blessed hope instead of having no hope without god in the world that's what calls it in scripture having no hope no hope and without god world. what's offered to you is a living blessed hope of glory the scripture uses those adjectives speaking of the hope that is within us reconsider today blessed lord we Do give you thanks for your word that warns us as well as promises us. And we give you thanks for those welcome promises today of a long-suffering God in whose name we give thanks. Amen.